As we celebrate this week the anniversary of our nation's independence, I think it is clear to many of us that perhaps as never before, there is a dramatic need for heroic and wise leadership to face our times. With every single news cycle, we are confronted with more and more difficult and complex problems. We see the European Union now fractured. We see economies on every continent, it seems, in tumult and in transition. The cancer of Islamic terrorism springs up in new places every week, it seems. And global violence has now sent out of their homes, made refugees of the largest number of people since World War II. Here at home, lawmakers seem incapable of finding common sense problems to commonwealth problems. Record numbers of people are expressing their anguish or their anger about all of this by joining populist movements of the left or the right. While millions more people, perhaps most disturbingly, simply amuse themselves or maybe anesthetize themselves with another plunge of the TV clicker, or the latest video from some cynical comedian or some dancing poodle, or I saw this past week, a sword swallower named Dan Meyer. <laughs> and I can't help but think, and maybe you think too, is this all we got? Really, is this all we've got to bring to the issues of our time? Is this what the men and the women who shed the blood and the tears that they did to found this nation, to frame its life, is this what they had in mind at the beginning? And if not, what is the secret? That's the question I want to pose today. What is the secret to getting us out of the malaise and the mess that seems to define so many corners of our national life? What's our best hope for building the kind of America and I, dare I say, the kind of Americans that are needed to face the challenges of our nation and our time with courage and clarity and compassion and conviction, what's our plan? Well, it's no secret to you that we have got two presumptive uh, candidates, nominees for the highest office of our land who are claiming to offer the leadership that we need at this time. One of them says, vote for me and I will give you greatness. I will lead America to a future that is as big and bold as the buildings and businesses I've proved that I can build. Believe me, I have the passion and I have the will that is needed to fix our problems and fight our enemies. Vote for me. The other candidate counters, I may not have so much razzle-dazzle, but I will give you genius. That's what I offer you, genius. I've got an Ivy League degree. I've got decades of proven work in domestic and foreign affairs. I've got the brains and the experience that our time needs. Vote for me. So to paraphrase a famous movie, who are you going to call? <laughs> who are you going to call this coming November to make Americans and to make America better amidst these interesting times in which we're living. When I was a political science student at Yale way back during the Jurassic period, um, <laughs> I made a point of, of reading the writings of an awful lot of presidents. 
and of would-be presidents as well. I poured over mountains and mountains of books about the founding of our nation, about our, our form of government, the ideals and practices that made the dreamt of uh, a life of America the destination for millions upon millions of people yearning to breathe free. It became clear to me as I studied our history and our founding documents and the writing, uh, writings of our leaders that, that America has been from the beginning a nation of contradictions. We have idealized her at times, but she has always been a strange confluence of virtue and of sin, a land of great opportunity and of persevering poverty, a place of wonderful freedom and stubborn oppression. But my study of this country's life over the years, my years spent living outside of this country, actually, and the testimony I've heard from so many people in other parts of the world about our country still lead me to think there is something immensely special about America, something enormously precious about this commonwealth, something so exceptional that it is worth struggling to name it and to restore it and to advance it, not merely for our own benefit, but so that we, the people of this God-blessed land, may be able to become even more of a blessing to other people. Many years ago, a French scholar by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville particularly got, I think, the secret to American life. And it's a secret that I want to try and think upon with you today. I was only 19 years old when I read his two-volume work, his masterwork, Democracy in America, but it left an enduring impression on me. In fact, I would go as far as to say his perception, what he said, played a major role in the fact that I'm standing here in this pulpit today. De Tocqueville and a colleague were sent to America in 1831. They had been commissioned by the French government to study the American criminal justice system, our prison system, but the two venturers used their commission to make much broader observations about the character of American society. And I want you to listen carefully to these words that de Tocqueville wrote in light of what the political leaders of our time are saying or maybe not saying. I sought for the greatness and genius of America, begins de Tocqueville. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. And I sought it in her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. And I sought it in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and the greatness and genius was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America, not until I heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness, did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, then America will cease to be great. Think on that. Think on those words with me for a moment, if you will. It seems to me that the most significant issue of our time is not who we elect in November, though that will be the only thing we practically hear about till that time comes. It seems to me 
that the most significant issue of our time is not where we come down on legislation currently being debated in our time or how we'll deal with the ramifications of the Brexit. These things, of course, all do matter. They deserve worthy consideration. But the most pressing question of our era is this one. What's our national plan for increasing the basic goodness of the American people? What's our national plan for increasing the moral vision and the fundamental character of the American people so that when someone angers or disappoints us, we don't resort to violence, pull out a gun, but instead work to heal the breach, to somehow forgive? So that when a troubled individual is in our midst, lots of us, lots of us reach out to them and surround them instead of letting them get isolated and then truly dangerous. So that when we're tempted to solve our pains with another drink or another drug, we turn to a community of people instead. So that when we don't, uh, we don't need to train or hire or deploy more police because people are more able now to discipline themselves? What's our strategy for improving the moral vision and the core character of our citizens so that when someone else gains a good, we don't assume that it is their responsibility to give it to us? So that when we've been unusually blessed ourselves, we just naturally think about how we can offer help to those who haven't been so well-resourced. So that when we differ with one another, we are far more likely to look for ground on which we might compromise than to criticize and condemn and demonize our opponents so, so, so that we don't confuse celebrity or beauty with success, true success, and we don't confuse success, mere success, with true significance. What is our plan for further increasing the goodness of the American people so that we look beyond skin color and blemishes to people's individual stories, so that we're willing to strive and sacrifice to protect the vulnerable, so that we resist the urge to take what isn't ours or to break our covenants or to disrespect rightful authority, so that when our selfishness is getting the best of us, there are these voices and these influences in our lives that challenge us and call us back to a better way, so that when terror or calamity strikes next. We pull together and we rise together determined to defeat evil with good. We had a plan for this. We had a plan for this once. And the founders of our nation, better than most, understood it very well. Our first president, George Washington, once said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are the indispensable supports. John Adams, our second president, said, we have no government capable of contending with human passions unbridled. For our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate for the government of any other kind of people. Our third president, Thomas Jefferson, said, the Bible is the source of liberty. The Bible is. It makes the best people in the world. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, said, the earlier my children 
begin to read the Bible, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens to their country and respectable members of society. John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, stated the most effectual means of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties is always to remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which these blessings flow. We had a plan once. We saw it clearly. We knew what it took to fashion the best kind of America, the best kind of Americans. And Jesus put it like this. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it gets planted, rooted deeply, and it grows, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And even though our founders never worked this idea fully into their lives, even though our founders and those who followed were never perfect, never really fully formed by it, the people of our country rooted their lives in the Word of God and in communities of faith for generation after generation after generation in our country's life. And that rich soil brought forth from it an unusual kind of country whose flourishing and fruitfulness attracted birds from all over the world to its branches. And when Alexis de Tocqueville saw the great tree of American life, he came to understand that it had the flourishing quality it did only because of its roots. Only because of its particular roots. I sought for the greatness and the genius of America, but not until I went to the churches did I understand the secret of her genius and power. The great genius of American life was what God could do with human beings when they rooted themselves in the soil and the influence of the local church. Now, if you go back and you do a little study yourself, you can verify this. Don't take my word for it. Please do make sure you do your own homework on this. But if you look carefully, you will see uh, that most of the hospitals, most of the colleges and universities, most of the non profit humanitarian organizations, most of the mission agencies, recovery groups, civic clubs, and many other life-giving circles that we take for granted now, you will find that at their root was some local church, some gathering of local churches perhaps. There was a church that envisioned these movements of blessing. There were specific disciples who funded that, who championed that, who who volunteered their time and their energies to advance that movement of goodness. For generation upon generation, the ethical vision and the moral fiber upon which uh, the much-storied American enterprise system was based also grew out of that specific soil. The willingness to do business on a handshake without needing an entire army of lawyers to negotiate everything. The ability to put in and willingness to put in a full day's labor 
and give full value to the people that employed you or to cultivate long-term employees because you kept executive pay reasonable so that all people could rise together. This behavior did not just bloom spontaneously. (laughs) This specific kind of behavior grew out of the notions of honesty and responsibility and community that kids and adults alike learned in Sunday school. In In the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of their local church. Even many of the films and the TV programs of an earlier era were shaped by the moral vision of the local church. There was hardly a judge or a legislator or a chief executive who was not active in some Christian congregation somewhere. And there were Christian congregations everywhere, on every corner, in every town and village of this country. Over the last 60 years, however, people have begun pulling themselves up and out of that soil. As that chart I'm showing you suggests, there was a rise in religious engagement that peaked in the post-World War II era. And then about 1960, for a whole lot of reasons we don't have time to go into today, that religious engagement began to slide off. And even though about 40% of Americans still tell pollsters that they go to church regularly, actual surveys at local churches tell a very different story. Only about 17% of Americans go to church regularly. And regular now means about 1.7 times per month. And as this engagement with the soil of the local church changes so dramatically, so does so much else in our world. There are now only about 300,000 churches left in America. I want you to think about that with me. Just 300,000 local churches left to shape the moral vision and the core character of more than 320 million American citizens. And the average church in America, of those 300,000, has uh, 50% have fewer than 100 people that are actually rooted there. 80% of those 300,000 churches are either plateaued, dead, or dying. One-third out of the 300,000 churches in America is in rapid decline, which is to say 10, 15, 20 years from now, they're gone. We're down to 200,000 churches, now trying to reach probably 380 million people. That's the trend line today. Could this have anything to do with the loss of moral vision or personal character that is needed to address the pressing issues of our government and our businesses and our cities and our schools and our homes? Could that trend line explain anything? I think it does. I think it's a trend we must take very, very seriously. Now, it's always tempting when you hear this sort of thing to mourn bygone times. Uh, Very often these days, I hear people, particularly uh, older members of local churches, mourning the days that were. And I understand why. I do feel that in my own soul. But remember, the past was never perfect. Uh, It really was not perfect. And God is always coming to us from the future anyway. He's always (laughs) 
calling to us from the future. Our job as Christians is not to take America back. Our job as disciples of Jesus Christ is to lead America forward in our time. And I love how a leader of the original church once framed that particular calling. And this is what he said. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised his eventual victory is faithful. And let us therefore consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not stop meeting together. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more. All the more. So let me close, if I may, this morning by offering some encouragement to you. If you are part of this particular local church, Christ Church of Oak Brook, then please remember you are part of the great genius that de Tocqueville saw as America's unusual strength. Only one half of 1% of all of the churches in America today, only 1,600 out of more than 300,000 enjoy the vitality and the spreading influence God has graciously given to you and to me and to this amazing congregation. One half of 1%. Nearly 300, or rather 3,000 people uh, find their way into the pews and the classrooms of this church every single week. There they are growing a bit more biblical vision for life, a more Christ-like character to bring to life. We are sowing the message of Jesus Christ to tens of thousands of people every single Sunday through the media outreach of Christ Church and through the mission engagement of our congregation. Every year we're investing a million and a half dollars or more in helping our mission partners strengthen the local church in their area, in their particular neighborhood. So as the writer to the Hebrews said, let's not stop meeting together. <laughs> Okay, this is very important work we do together. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's keep spurring one another on toward love and good works. For we are part of an amazing legacy, you and I. Uh, this particular congregation, part of a, of a remarkable legacy, 82 households in 1965, just 82 households in the years following that chose way back in the 60s when Americans were starting to pull their roots up out of the soil and to become more rootless as they would be in the days to come, 82 households said, no, let's plant our roots even more deeply on that corner, 31st and York Street. And a mere 82 households built this space, this building that we're living in this disciple-making environment, this place where thousands of people could one day come and find shelter and hope and nurture, and, and, and they emblazoned on the cornerstone of the building those words of Jesus that call to go out into all the world and to help more and more people find their way and plant their roots deeply in soil like this. That is not just our legacy. 
that, beloved, is also our future. And this coming fall, we're going to have a very serious conversation together as a church family about the mission God has given us for our time and how we can ensure that this remarkable tree that God has grown up out of this particular soil remains a source of life and blessing for generations and generations to come. You see, the challenges facing our nation and our world today will not be solved, really, in the way that people are clamoring to see the problem solved. The, the, the great issues, the complex problems of our time uh, will, will not ultimately be solved by the growth of government from above so much as by the growth of goodness from below. And that kind of goodness depends on one thing, soil, really good soil, and our willingness to root ourselves deeply in that soil. You and I need to be doing that. It does begin here with us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then I will heal their land. So we need to root our lives more deeply in Christ and then try and help as many people as we can possibly reach find similar rooting for their life as well. Because it's only going to be as that sort of revival of rooting happens here and in the faithful remnant of the vital churches that are still out there across the American landscape that our country and more people will come to bear the fruit of character so desperately needed in our time. Never forget what Alexis de Tocqueville understood. It is God's power at work through the life of the local church that is the true secret to the genius and the greatness of America and is God's hope for our world. Would you please pray with me? Lord, you are the source, the great supply of all true wisdom and power. We thank you for the privilege of life in this extraordinary country and for every citizen that has poured out sweat, blood, or tears to help make America both beautiful and free. Use us now, we pray, to further grow her goodness. Let that begin with each of us as we root our identity, our security, our vision of success and significance above all in you, Lord, and in the mission of your church. Through Jesus Christ we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.